Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, we want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, this morning we're going to be in John, or First John, rather, First John chapter two, and we are going to deal primarily with the first ten verses in First John chapter two. Um, but before we do that, before we go to chapter two, I want to I want to look at the end of chapter one, um, just as a reminder of where we left off, just in order to set the context of where we are today. If uh, if you listened to last week's message, if you're with us here online or if you went back and listened to it on uh, our podcast or, or on Facebook, um, then you remember we talked about how John is writing this at the end of his life. We, we've actually talked about that for the first, last couple of weeks where he's probably close to 100 years old. He might be approaching 100 years old. He's you know, maybe you know early 90s to 100. No, you know, we don't really know for sure, but we know he's at the end of his life, and he's writing this letter to the church. First John, Second John, and Third John are letters that he wrote to to the church. When I say the church, I mean Christians everywhere. The Christians that were listening to to John, that John really felt like he was the the pastor of in that day, and really it's for all of us, you know, for generations to come as well. And at this point in John's life, I mentioned that there's just, there's nothing that John wants from you, right? There is nothing that he would be seeking from us as the church. I mean, he's not seeking to gain anything from the church. Like he's, he's just totally, totally for us. He's totally for the gospel and he wants something for us. He wants us to understand something. And in sharing this book, sharing his letter, He's recognizing that the church in that day and the church to come, us today, has battles. And we always have battles. We always will have battles. And he's looking at the battle of these people in that day and what they're facing. And he realizes that what he desires for God's people to know, like the last thing that he wants to tell them before he moves on to be with Christ in heaven, is he wants to make sure they understand that they're really clear on who the Lord is who God is and who, how the foundation of, of the centrality of Jesus, and then walk in light of that, walk in light of that understanding and in that knowledge. And we're going to talk more about that as we get into chapters two and three, this identity of Jesus and the truth that we stand for as believers and how important it is to, to understand what truth is and how vital that is, you know, especially in today's world. But you know, what John wants to say to us, we mentioned in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, the purpose for his writing, he says, I am writing these things to you, I'm writing this to you, that your joy may be complete, that our joy together collectively may be complete. So John desires not only to see you become a follower of Jesus, to see someone say, hey, I believe in Jesus, but he really desires that you would find your life satisfied in all that Jesus is. And that's a different thing. That's a whole, those two things have to go together. And, and then he begins to describe this conflict uh, that we have, this conflict. And, and he, he puts it in metaphorical terms like saying that God is light. And then he begins to describe what this journey with God who is, who is, who is light um, is like. And he says in verses 6 through 9, just as a, sorry, just as a review, if we say 
we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's where we left off last week. And what you see here is that this God, this, this, this God of light, this, this God who is holy, who is completely other, who is completely pure, he desires something with his people that he's created. And what he desires is a relationship. He desires relationship. And I love the terminology that, that he uses to describe that relationship. What John does is he describes this relationship with God as a journey or as a walk. He says it's a walk. We walk with him in the light. I think it's a beautiful description of our relationship with God because I think sometimes you can see Christians, when they first come to the Lord, they have all this passion. They're all excited. And it's like they, they, they begin and they're running this 100-meter dash, right? And, and, they, and they think about Christianity as like, you know, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do for God? And it's a marathon. We don't realize it's a marathon. It's a lifelong journey where God just wants to meet with you every day. And what happens a lot of times is I think people start out with that passion and it burns fast and then it gets depleted because you're burning that fuel too quickly. And the way John chooses to describe this, he says, man, you know, it's like I've been through this. I'm 100 years old now. I know what it means to, to walk with God through the good and through the bad. I, I know what that looks like. I know what that sounds like. And more than anything, what I want you to know, I think John is saying, is it's, this is a walk. It's a beautiful journey. It's a nice long walk. You know, it's one of the things I've actually been doing uh, you know, during this whole, when the first, when the coronavirus stuff first started and we are all kind of locked down, everything was closed. It was really, really beneficial to just get out and, and I would, I would, I would run, but then I, I would, I would want to go further and I couldn't, I mean, I, I can't run a lot. And so I would run, walk, I would run a little bit and then walk a little bit. And, uh, and I, and I would just go and I, and I found these, just these, these roads that I'd never even been on before. I'd never been driven on before and I just walk them. And it was, it was, it was a kind of a nice long journey. And what was really cool about it was I didn't think about the really, I didn't, I wasn't in a hurry for anything. I had nothing to get to. There was nothing on my calendar, nothing on my schedule. And there was something very refreshing about just going on a nice long walk. There was something really encouraging about that. And I think John wants us to understand that this Christianity thing that we embrace, that we, that we proclaim, it's a, it's a walk. It's a long journey. And then he describes the conflict that we face. And he talks about it in terms of light and darkness. He says if we, if we, if we, we fellowship, if we have fellowship with darkness, or the, you know, we have, then, then we cannot be in the light. If we say that, we're, that we've never sinned, then we're actually in the dark and we're, and we're deceiving ourselves and, and there's no light in us. So he says, we want to walk in the light as he is in the light. And he knows that we're not going to be perfect when we're on this journey together. But, but, and so because of that, God knows you're not going to be perfect. And because of that, he provides this, this relationship of recognizing, confessing your sin, recognizing and God forgiving you of your sin. John begins talking to us about how to deal with the sin in our life. He knows that this conflict that we have in the church and in our lives personally is always going to center around this thing called sin, this battle that we have with sin. Well, one question that people often have when we talk about sin 
is how can I avoid sin? Like, how do you avoid sin? How do you keep from sinning, right? I mean, that's, a, that's an important question to ask, I think. I think if you're a Christian, you don't want to sin. And so it's an important question to consider. And what I want us to understand is this, is that when it comes to answering that question, there is a, there's a religious way to try not to sin, and then there's a relationship way that we can avoid sin. There's a, in a religious mindset, for example, the way that we would think about not sinning is just to not sin, right? We would, we would be thinking about that. Just don't sin. Don't do it. And so what happens is you, well, how do I not sin? Well, I got to create rules for myself. I have to eliminate certain objects from my life. I got to just do all these things to try to avoid sinning, right? Well, the problem with that is your focus and your perspective is on sin. And even if you eliminate things, you got to fill it with something else. And often what we end up doing is filling that void in our life with something else that ends up becoming just as sinful, so John gives us the answer, and, he's, it's, and this is the example of his life, and he gives us the answer to avoiding sin, and he said the answer to avoiding sin is not to stop sinning, but it's to walk with Jesus. That's the answer. I remember hearing one of my uh, professors when I was in college answer a question that someone, uh, one of my college classmates asked him one time. It was just a really, really highly respected professor. And it was one that, I remember we used to have conversations. We asked ourselves, did you think Jim Girdwood ever sins? Like, like when was the last time he sinned, right? I mean, it was just one of those guys where he was just so genuine. And, and uh, one, of my, one of the students said, hey, you know, Dr. Girdwood, Dr. Girdwood, I couldn't, we used to just call him Dr. Goodwords because we couldn't say his last name. Dr. Goodwords, how do you keep from sinning? Like, how do you not sin? And it was funny to watch his reaction to that question because he was actually kind of taken aback by it. You could tell that he had never really thought about it much. Like, you know, and the way he answered it was like this. He's like, you know, I really, I really don't worry about not sinning that much. I just really want to walk with Jesus. And I think that is the answer. That's the, that's the actual answer. If you want to avoid sin... It's not about, I mean, the goal isn't to avoid sin. The goal is to walk with Jesus, to learn what that really looks like, to walk with Jesus. Because when you're in the light and your life is about light, as John says, then the darkness diminishes around you. There, is, there, won't, there won't be any darkness if you're walking in light. So John's interested in these moments, excuse me, for a follower in Christ, a disciple of Jesus, right? A Christian, to go on this journey with God. And so like, you know, like, like right now, if you're at this place in your life where you're like, you know, I, I kind of want that. I want that journey with the Lord. I'm tired of battling sin and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, I need a long walk. I need a refreshing walk. Well, here's the cool thing. The beginning of chapter two, where we're going to today, starts off by explaining what this looks like, that, that, what it looks like to have this God who desires relationship with you. So chapter two, verse one, I love the way John says this because right as he begins, he shows us that it's rooted, this relationship that we have, this walk that you have with God is rooted in identity. He's addressing believers here, right? And he's like, okay, you know, and I, I think he's just imagining, okay, if believers are saying, what do I do then? You know, what do I, 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 I want to go on this journey. I want this walk to be part of my life. So what do I do? And, and he, he starts right off with this idea of discipleship as being rooted in an identity. So what is that identity? All right. And he says this, my little children, 
And I think when John's using this title, he's referring, I think he's referring to his position over the church, like he's kind of seeing himself as a fatherly figure over the church. And I think he's he's helping them navigate through difficult times and, and he's kind of calling them, you know, his little children. But I also think that he's using this title because it's something that he heard Jesus say quite a bit about the way God relates to us as, as, as a family. If you're in Christ, you're part of a family. We're, you know, we are part of a family. The gospel, you know, in the gospel of John, uh, you know, the gospel, the, the, the book that John also wrote to tell us about his encounters with Jesus, he refers to those who have put their faith in Christ as part of a family. Right off at the very beginning in John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, as many as has received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. Now that's not to assume that everyone in this world is, is, is a child of God. Everyone belongs to the Lord. Um, it actually has a caveat. If, you, if I read that verse again, listen to the caveat. As many as has received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. And so if you're coming to 1 John chapter 2 and you're like, okay, I want to walk in that light. I want to, I want to take this journey and, and have that be part of my life. Then John starts with the area of identity, how you see yourself. And this is so important to do in anything you do in life. I mean, when you go to a job, like if you have a job, your job in the company, you know, like the bigger the company the more fine-tuned your position is, right? I mean, you the more specific your position is. If you're the only one in your company, then you wear every hat and you do it all. But regardless of what your job is, understanding your title and you know defines what it is that you're supposed to do. Like you don't go into a job and just start doing stuff and then they see you do stuff and it's like, okay, you know, let's call you that because because that obviously is what you're doing. I mean, when you apply, you know, you pretty much know what it is that you're going to be doing. And the same is true for those that belong to Jesus. I mean, the most, the most popular term that we use in referencing ourselves today is the term Christian, and which means little Christ. And I can tell you, that term is actually only used in the New Testament three times, just three times. And one time is actually derogatory. It was people making fun of, of the followers of Christ. The more popular terms used for, you know, to describe you, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ and Christian, is actually that word, follower, disciple, ambassador is used, priests is used, or in fact, a royal priesthood is used, child, bride, we're the bride of Christ. And, and, and I think in hearing those terms helps us to understand that identity and that identity helps to communicate for us the purpose for which you have been created in Christ. And it helps you understand how to live out this thing that we call Christianity. Just calling yourself a Christian, I think, means a lot of things in today's world. And sometimes we don't understand what it means to actually live this thing that we call Christianity. And so everything, we have to understand, everything we have begins in Jesus. We need to see ourselves as believers as something, you know, it's something we work from our, you know, being a believer in Christ is something that works from our identity. We don't work for that identity. Does that make sense? I, I, I feel like I'm not making sense. But everything we have and everything we are is because of Jesus. The grace of God that's made known in our lives becomes, you know, is, is, is something that is, creates an identity in who you are, right? And so rest in that identity. Let me, let me say it this way. I think this would be an easier way to understand it. 
I said there's two different ways to look at who you are in Christ, religion and relationship. Religion serves God to be loved. Christians, followers of Christ, serve God because we're loved. Religion serves God to feel important. Christians serve God because we are important to God. Religion serves God to find acceptance. Christians serve because you have acceptance in Jesus. Religion serves God because God needs us to. Christians serve because God wants us to and invites us to. Religious people serve so that they can look good to God, but Christians serve just because God is good. So that's what I mean by beginning with your identity. John says, my little children. And what you see you know, back in chapter one is, is that you know, God, God cares. This light comes into the darkness. And he, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not this place of penance, like, but it's a place of honesty before him, whereby he embraces us and forgives us. And God desires this relationship for you, this never-ending love like a good father who loves us kids. And that's just sort of the way this works. It works like that. You'll, you, and you need to know that that's what that love is like. I remember one of my kids when they were young, when they got into trouble, I won't say which one, but I, <laughs> but I remember the disappointment and the failure like the first time when they knew that they failed me, right? And, and, and that we, we had this talk about what they did. And I just gave this little reminder at the end. I said, I want you to know, despite this, I'm never going to stop loving you. And I can remember the first time those eyes looked up at me and you kind of see, you know, the, the wonder and like the, 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 that they actually comprehended what I was saying, right? And I was like, really, dad? I mean, really, this, this doesn't affect my relationship with you? And the answer is absolutely not. I'm never going to stop loving you. There's never going to be anything to change that. I will be hurt by you. I'm sure I will be hurt. I'll be disappointed, but I'll never stop loving. And, and that's what this title in chapter 2 of 1 John represents, little children. God knows that when you begin this journey, it's not going to be perfect. I mean, you know, look at this. John says, I am writing these things to you. So little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, look, we don't want to sin. It's not like, we, it's not like you're going to, you know finish this service today and say, hey, I want to go out here and sin, right? I just want to sin. I just want to sin. We don't think about that, but we just do, right? And, And so he says, I'm writing these things to you. So you disciples, you followers of Christ, while you're on, but I know that you're going to. So if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This text describes for us, this is a deep, this is, this is a really, really cool verse, and it describes for us two aspects of the identity of God that is very real and active in your life constantly. Think about what we've seen about God so far in these first two chapters. You know, God is light, which means he's pure, right? He's, he's pure. He's holy. He's other. It's this powerful idea of he's just not like us in any way at all. And, and, you know, 
holiness comes out of this light. And when you're in the light, it's just you see everything for what it is. And when you look at God, he is perfect. He's completely different. And that's so important to understand. And at the same time, now John, just immediately off of that understanding, off of that description, he comes back to us and says, this God who is other is also forgiving and gracious. He's also one who comes close to you. And he uses these terms advocate and propitiation. And you might wonder, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, an advocate, let's start with that one. An advocate creates this idea of a courtroom when you think about it. And, And God is the judge, Satan and sin is the accuser, and you're on trial. You're guilty. Absolutely guilty. Jesus is your defender. And when Jesus makes his defense for you as an advocate, how does John describe the way Jesus advocates for you? He says he is the propitiation. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 3. And what that means is everyone knows you're guilty. I mean, you know you're guilty. Everyone knows you're guilty. But in the guilt of our sin before a holy God, Jesus becomes this thing called a propitiation. And and the word propitiation means appeasement. That's one of the ways to define it. It's an appeasement. So specifically, he appeases, he satisfies the wrath of God, and he turns it to favor toward you. So not only does he satisfy the wrath of God, that God no longer is angry with you, but he actually turns that anger, and now God looks upon you as, 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 as in a favorable way. Well, why and how, right? Because of the exchange of his own life that we talked about last week, a physical sacrifice for your physical life, he sacrificed himself in your place so that when God looks at you, instead of seeing you with your sin, he now sees the righteousness of Christ in your life. Jesus's payment is sufficient and that is how God can forgive you. And let me say it this way, that is the only way God can forgive you. Jesus is the only way God can forgive you. I know that that's, a, 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 that's an important thing for us to understand. You know, I, this gets so misunderstood in our culture, and it's a difficult thing to have to, to it's, a, it's a difficult conversation for people to have because there's this idea we connect being good, like, you know, that, that person's a good person, they've done a lot of good things, or man, that guy, you know, somebody dies. And you ask yourself, ah, did, they ever, did they ever know Jesus? Did they ever confess Christ in their life? Did they ever, and, and it's like people want to, they, they want to, to, to shift from that line of thinking to, oh man, but they, they, were, they, was, they, were, they were a really good person. I can't imagine they wouldn't be in heaven. They're a good person. But that's not, that's not the payment for heaven. That's not the payment. I, I mean, let I, I me try to illustrate it. Imagine you walking in a store and you, you see this like really fine diamond that you decide you want to buy. It's, you know, your attention, you're immediately drawn to this fine, this fine gem, and you want to purchase it. And the owner says, well, it's very expensive. And you're like, I, I, whatever it is, I'll pay it. I, I need this, right? And the owner says, well, that's not how it works. You can't pay for it. You don't have enough. You don't have what you, it's impossible for you to pay for. 
And so what the owner does is he reaches down behind the counter and he, he brings this, he pulls out this gift and he hands this, this gift wrap box to you and he says, that's the payment for it. And I'm going to go ahead and provide it for you. You just got to take it and use it. And you, 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 you look at it and you're like, that, no, that's, that, that, that can't be it. That can't be right. And so you, you pull out your wallet and you're like, okay, how, how much? I'm seriously, I'll pay for it. And he's like, no, 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 that's, that's, not, that, that's not the payment. That's not what it takes to get this, to get this prize. It's, it's this. But we, we want to ignore this because we just can't believe that that's actually what it takes, that that's actually the payment, right? And so you get out a journal and you list all the things. You're like, well, here's all the good things that I've done in my life. I mean, and all these people can vouch for me. Surely that would give it. And, and he's like, no, you don't get it. That's not it. The payment is this gift. Jesus is the only payment that is acceptable for heaven. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. But don't tune out just yet. <laughs> don't turn it off just yet. Because as John communicates this to us, he then talks about not only living in that identity as a child of God, but now living out that identity in our lives. And that's what the rest of these verses talk about. So when you think about this issue of discipleship, living it out, right? Living out this life that we have in Christ, it starts on this platform of intimacy, knowing him, you know, knowing who you are in him, and then it builds from there. And he says, and by this, we continue, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So this word know is more than an intellectual exercise. It has to be, right? It's more than just saying, I know Jesus and I believe that he's the son of God and I give him my life. I know that, right? It, so John's like, it, it's, it's more than that. But in John's day, remember, we talked about Gnosticism a few weeks ago. It's religion, um, a teaching that was growing at that time in John's day. And the Gnostics believed that the more knowledge they gained, the more spiritual they became. So you just learned more and you knew more. And if you did that, then you were more spiritual. And so it was all just about the training of your mind, right? It didn't matter how you lived. It didn't matter the rest, of, you know, the rest of your life. didn't matter how you lived your life. And so what John is saying is this, that if you know him, not just intellectually, but personally, intimately, look at the next verse. Whoever says, I know him, the one who says, whoever says, I, verse four, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So knowing him should reflect in our lives because when we personally know him, we begin to care about the things that he cares about. I mean, it's like this. Imagine if, if you want to know like what you're like, like if you want someone to tell you, hey, what am I like as a person, right? Then, then like just describe me, describe my personality. Then one of the ways that we can describe you is by having you look at the people you hang out with the most. Because that kind of happens. Does you ever notice how that works? Like you have friends, you have best friends, and so like when you when you hang out with people a lot, you you have the same enjoyments. You find that you have the same desires. Maybe you did before you were friends and that's what drew you together. But even if you didn't, you become you you grow to like the same things, right? And you even pick up on many of the same mannerisms and behaviors and and phrases of speech and and habits, right? 
And, and John's saying the same thing about the Lord. The same thing is true with Jesus, that when you really connect with God and you know what he's about and you really know him, you can't help but care about the same things that he cares about. And you walk in the way that he walks, which, which are his commandments, John says. When, when you know him, you not only know the things about him, but when you really know him, you also love the things that he loves. And so John uses this play on words here when he talks about knowing him. In Philippians 1, Paul says this um, in the same, you know, in a similar way. In verses 9 and 10, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So he's talking about knowing, knowing all things through discernment in order that you might approve the things that are excellent, so that you might, you might recognize what is excellent in Christ and be sincere. He wants you to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, like until the end of your life. The word sincere there is a really cool word. I want to explain what that word means. As you understand what it means to be sincere, think about it like this. You know, the word for sincerity translates literally like this, without wax. It's, that's, that's what that word means, without wax. And the reason why it translates like that is because this. In Roman days, they would make these beautiful sculptures. And you've probably all seen them. They're pretty much just all naked. That's, you've seen like those big, fat, naked sculptures. That's, you know, a lot of times it's a Roman sculpture. But they do these sculptures, and the great sculptors would be able to just use the stone, like a big piece of stone, and just beautifully sculpt this masterpiece without any flaws. But the sculptors that weren't so great would mess up from time to time, and in order to fix their, their mess-ups, they would take wax, and they would melt this wax, and they would cover up their mistakes with wax. And everyone thought it was perfect. Like they'd look at those sculptures and think they were perfect as well until they sat in the sun for a while. And when the sun hit that wax, it would begin to melt and thus expose the imperfections. The wax proved that it was not sincere. And so when it comes to faith, your faith and your sincerity before the Lord, when we truly know him, then there is something genuine about our lives as we reflect every single day, as we speak, as we interact with people. We aren't just regurgitating religious phrases that we heard someone else say. We aren't just speaking one thing and then living another way, but we are to be without wax, genuine. So John goes on to say to us in verse five, whoever keeps his word in him Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which we, in which he walked. So we might read verse five and we feel a little overwhelmed when you hear that word perfect. Like, ah, the word perfect is in there. That's, that's not me, right? But what he's saying isn't that, I mean, that isn't that you're, that you're now perfect, what he's saying is that it, this, this relationship comes to completion. It's, it's the perfect result, meaning that you're not perfect, but when you walk with Jesus, there's something about that relationship that is perfected in you recognizing your identity in Jesus and then living it out. 
He's wanting to communicate that when you walk with God, you start to reflect the goodness of who he is in this world. And then it's obvious that a person sees you and they know that you know Jesus because of that behavior, because of the way that you live. When you reflect the goodness of who he is in this world, he works through you. And when he works through you, he is able to love people the way he really truly desires to love them. It's almost like you become the hands and feet of Jesus as you love people as if they were Jesus standing right in front of you. That's the idea. That's what John is telling his little children that he's talking to. Look, just look at people as though they're Jesus and love them that way. God's will is then accomplished when you do that. God's will is completed. God's will is perfected when you do that. It's when we see that demonstrated in your life that that's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He says, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that word abide, listen to that, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I love what John does here in verses five and six, because what he's doing is he's simplifying what it means to be a disciple. I mean, disciple, I mean, the word disciple is, is we get our word discipline from disciple. Being a disciple of Christ is, is the practice of a discipline. It's something that you do every day. In a, in a churchy way, I could describe it like this. I want to get churchy with you here this morning in a, in a little complicated way, but we'll try to take something that's two complicated words and simplify them. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You ever, you ever heard, is that, have you ever said the word orthopraxy, right? So if I were to tell you what orthodoxy and orthopraxy means, I would say it's this, it's what you believe and how you behave, what you know and what you do. And that's the most simple way to put it, right? So as a follower of Jesus, there is what we learn to believe in Christ and then how we learn to behave in Christ, And these two things, both of these things are driven, are all encompassed by your heart, a heart that is surrendered wholly to the Lord. That's the kind of person who will get it right, who gets it right. There are a lot of people out there that aren't getting it right. If we just talk about the mind without your behavior, or we talk about your mind without the heart, you're going to miss it. If we talk about your behavior without the heart, it just ends up being religious living, empty. If the motivation for your believing and the motivation for your serving is driven by the way God transforms your heart, your identity and who you are in Christ, then that is what is beautiful before God. And so when we talk in terms of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what you believe and how you behave, the motivation behind this is heart-driven. And so when you're looking at 1 John 2, 5, he talks about whoever keeps his word, which, you know, which is the truth and what you believe, the truth of what you believe. That's what helps us to be perfected in this relationship that God has that with us, right? To live that out, with, you know, that, that which God has called you to in this world, to be able to live it out so that others might know that you actually are in him. That that relationship is real. It's there. But, you know, but whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And in saying this, you know, people, people are going to know that you're in him by this, he says, right? The only evidence that you truly are for Jesus, that you truly belong to Jesus, is how you live. The only evidence that you truly are belonging to Jesus is how you live. You can say it all day long. You can post about it all you want. But if there is no indication that your heart is truly changed, 
Do you belong to Jesus? And then John does something really beautiful, I think. I think in these moments, it's really possible that he considers very simply like his own life. I mean, if you wonder, I sometimes wonder, maybe John later in his life as he's writing this letter, he's probably reflecting on the way his life was changed by Jesus when he became a disciple. If you remember week one when we talked about John, one of the things that we outlined and or identified about John, you know, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, is that he and his brother were called the sons of thunder, right? He was the kind of guy that would punch you in the face first uh, and then ask questions later. He had a temper. Uh, he comes to Jesus and he's like, he's, he, he says, you know, early on and, you know, as he's walking with Jesus, he's like, hey, make me top dog in your kingdom. I want to sit in your right hand. My brother will sit on your left, right? And Jesus says like, that's not how it works. If you want to be great, you've got to become the least. And Jesus proclaims that he is going to die as the least servant that walked the earth, as the lowest servant that walked the earth. And that's going to set an example for you. And then something begins to happen in John's life there toward the end of that time before Christ went to the cross. John is radically transformed. And when you get to John, the gospel of John chapter 13, you see the story of Jesus sitting in the upper room with his disciples. And John has this conversation with Jesus right before the crucifixion. And then John goes to this upper room with Jesus and his life is transformed completely from that point as a, as a young man, really. And all of a sudden in John 13, you see John now being referred to, referring to himself as the beloved, the one Jesus loves. What happened? What's different? Son of thunder, the one Jesus loves. I think John finally understood what Jesus did for him. And so John is now the beloved in Christ. And so maybe, think about this, maybe he's in this moment in his mind. He's reminded of that transformation. And you get to verses 6 and 7 in 1 John chapter 2. And John starts to reflect back to that moment in his discipleship with Jesus, those last six hours that he spent with Jesus and how intimate that was, how important that was, how transformational that was for his life. And then John records those last, I mean, it's so transformational that he records all, you know, he takes like verses, you know, chapters 13 through 17 in his gospel to tell you about that. He wants you to know about it. And then in 1 John, when he's thinking about being a disciple, back to that time. Maybe he goes back there in his mind. And I think there's an indication that he does for us when we see in verse six, he says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This word abide is the same word that Jesus used in, in John 15, verse five. Jesus said, whoever abides in me and I in him will, will bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And then John says in verse 7, this, this is 1 John chapter 2, perhaps thinking about that time with Jesus, right? Beloved, now he's calling all of us beloved, not just him, all of us. I am writing no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 
So go back to that upper room. In John 13, 34, John's in the upper room with Jesus just before his crucifixion, and Jesus says it just like this. Jesus says this, John 13, 34. A new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciple, that you have love for one another. John writes, it's not a new commandment. But then he says, it is a new commandment. (laughs) So what in the heck does that mean, right? What in the world, how do we interpret this? If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel had what they called the Shema. And that it's a th- something that they would recite in the morning and in the evening. And it, was, it went like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So it's an old commandment. This, this, this thing, that this, this creed that they would live by, right? It's an old commandment going all the way back to the old covenant. But now in the new covenant, Jesus comes along and he says that he taught us these two great commandments, right? To love God. What are the, you know, someone asked him, what are the greatest commandments? Love God, love others. And he says it like this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that's not new. What do you mean new, right? I mean, we've been saying that ever since we were little. I mean, every morning and every night. But what is new? This. The way that I have loved you. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so John, in these moments, I think, is thinking about the way the church is going to be successful, the way the church is going to grow and carry on after he's gone and how it's going to be lived out in the way that he wants to tell them that it's lived out is the love, the same love that Jesus loves them with. They're going to love the things that Jesus loves, and they're going to live that out. As they walk in the light, they're going to reflect that in this world and all they do. And so John's mind goes all the way back to that upper room where he's in his early 20s, And he spent time with Jesus and he walked with Jesus and he thinks, you know, from the very beginning, I knew what it was to walk with him, to understand that while God calls us in this world, I have a choice of either loving the world or loving Jesus. And my love is for Jesus because Jesus has loved me so much. And I want to share the passion of that love with this world and the intimacy of what it means to walk with Christ and have relationship with Christ. And that commandment for us that became new in Jesus, it was, you know, it becomes new because it was demonstrated by his own life given over for us. Never have we seen the love of God more specifically and that detailed as God becoming flesh and giving his life as an advocate and propitiation for us. And so now John is saying to us in his statement, this new commandment that we live in the light of the love of God has been manifested for us in the way God loves us. And it's manifested in the world by the way we love others. And so let me ask you, how can you make a difference in this world? As a Christian, as one who carries that title, how can you make a difference in this world? When you think about what it means to make a real and lasting difference in this world, here's what it starts with. It starts with knowing God's word, and then it continues with loving the people around us. And let me be really, really clear about what it means to love people 
around us the way Jesus loves you, right? Because that's a really important thing to grasp. I think one of the best things we can do to be sure that we're loving like Jesus is this. When you go out in the world, everyone that you encounter, look at them as if they were Jesus. What? Look at them as if they were Jesus? Yes. Because Jesus says, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done for me. Jesus cared for all, for every soul in this world. It's whatever you've done for those who irritate the crap out of you, you've done for Jesus. Whatever you've done for those who annoy you, you've done for Jesus. Whatever you've done for those who stand on the opposite end of the political spectrum from you, you've done for Jesus. You see, it's, 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 it's too easy, I think, to say, I love God, I read His Word, and I love people. That's what it means to be a Christian, without really considering the actual implications of what that looks like, specifically the kind of people you might be called to love on a daily basis. So I, I want to close with one more thought, and I really will close with this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says this, In your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense, an answer, to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet we do this with gentleness and respect. So that's a, a purpose statement for Christians, I think. You need a purpose statement, like you want to know what your purpose is? I think if you take 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and you, and you keep that in front of you, that's your purpose. We're not here to argue with anyone. We're not here to belittle anyone. We're not here to prove ourselves better than anyone. We're here to love people. And I like the way Peter says this because he says, be prepared to give a defense, to give defense to anyone who asks for the reason for that, that you know, which is in you. It, it, you know, it's, it's like this. It's like, you know, these disciples are living so radically that people just want to know why they're choosing to live this way right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's just happening. It's like life, their life was so transformed in Christ that it was obvious that people began to ask the questions like, what, what, what's compelled you? Their life is so fully consumed for the love of Jesus and for others that people around them see this and they're coming to them and they're asking them about it. That's one of the greatest evangelistic tools in the world. I mean, I, that's what I think. I think what was happening in that day, look, the church in the, in the book of Acts didn't need fancy marketing. They didn't need a stage with a bunch of lights and a really cool band and a really charismatic pastor that people was draw, were drawn to. They didn't need a billboard and they didn't need a TV station. You know what they needed? Here's what they needed. The greatest, the most powerful evangelistic tool in the church in the early days was this, the church. It was just them. It was just them being the church. When you read Acts 2 and you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, it tells us like what they did daily. They were meeting with one another in their homes, breaking bread together, having dinner together, listening to the teaching of the disciples, praying for one another. And then it says this, and the Lord, just, just doing that, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
And I think what it's recognizing is that they were just so, they so radically cared about each other. They, they, they cared about Jesus. They spent time together that when the world saw this, they were attracted to it. It was attractive. And people wanted to know it. They wanted that in their own lives. They longed for that kind of love. And so they asked. And Peter said, and when they ask, give them an answer. And the Lord added to these to their number. The Lord added these people to their number daily. So let me ask you, you who are watching this and listening to this word right now, very simply, do you know the love of Jesus? Have you experienced the love of Jesus? I mean, in a really, really personal, real way. Are you maybe sensing him reaching out to you right now through this time that we've had together? If so, very simply, respond to him. Just respond. And as we pray here in just a minute, just just tell Jesus that you desire to surrender your life to him. And you don't need all the answers, but you'll start taking that long walk today. Some of you recognize, I need that long walk. Start taking it today. And along the way, you'll discover some of the answers. You'll never get them all, but you'll discover some of them. And you'll know what it means to walk with Jesus. And your life will look more like Jesus. And the people around you will notice it. And they'll ask you, hey, what's going on? Let's pray. God, we are um, we're reminded today what really matters. And what really matters, according to John, is knowing Christ, knowing what it looks like to live in the love of Christ and live that out so that the rest of the world sees the love of Christ through our lives. Lord, my prayer today, very, very simply, is that that would be our focus. Whatever our focus has been on, may we restart today and put our focus on the love of Christ, looking out over the landscape of our world and seeing Jesus everywhere, not because people behave like Jesus, but because Jesus calls us to love the way Jesus loved. That is so radical, so radically different than what we're used to. But Lord, may it be something that we commit to today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.